Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Empowered Living, with a message entitled Amazing Grace. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. You'd imagine that today is the day of your death. I don't know how you die. Maybe you had an unexpected heart attack or perhaps you're killed in an automobile accident. Maybe it's cancer, but whatever the cause, this is it. The Bible says that each of us has an appointment with death. If today is your appointment, you'll die today. Nothing will stop that. And then comes the reality of the next life. Romans 14 verse 12 says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You now find yourself before the throne of God. It is judgment day. What will you say? What confidence would you have in entering into heaven? If you're like millions and millions, if you're like the majority of North Americans, you're going to respond, I do my best. That's all everyone can do. Others will answer, I pray, or I give to the poor, or even I go to church, or I'm not sure. Or, you know, if that's your answer, I have extremely bad news for you. The human condition is such that we cannot save ourselves. If the Bible is right, we're in bad shape. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. What an image, being swept away by our sins. And suddenly we are no more. And when we finally appear before God, we realize that we stand there covered in filth. What horror. The Bible says we're all lost. It says we're unsaved. Ephesians 2, 3 says that we're objects of wrath by nature. How is anyone saved? That's the most important question we can ask. It's important because the reality of the human condition. You know, I saw a t-shirt which read, it's not that life is so short, it's that death is so long. Yeah, eternity stands before us. How can we be saved? It is important not to guess at this point. It's important not to do a survey of what others think. They might be wrong. I fear that so many of us have pooled our ignorance on this matter. Imagine you're flying a single-engine airplane at night. There are no lights. Everything is dark, and you can't see the ground. And all your instincts tell you that you're flying level to the ground, but your navigational instruments tell you you're headed downward. feels wrong. You decide to try to fly by your instruments, but it definitely feels like you're going steeply up. And that would mean you're in trouble. And so you start to fly by your inner sense again. That feels right now. You ask your passenger if he feels you're going down and he informs you, no, that's not possible. You're flying straight. He tells you the navigational instruments must have malfunctioned. Well, the night's black and you can't see. And suddenly realize you have a decision to make. You'll either fly according to your sense of things or you're going to fly according to an objective standard. You'll live or die according to that decision. What you don't know is that many pilots have simply been unable to fly according to the instruments and because of that have lost their lives. It's a phenomenon called vertigo. That scenario is before all of us. We're all flying in the dark. The person beside you might be as confused about eternity as you are. Whom shall you trust? How are we to be saved? It's so important to know. You know, at this moment, there must be no confusion. The Bible on this matter is like navigational instruments on an airplane, and they present the picture with absolute clarity. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what does that passage teach us? Well, first, we're saved by grace through faith. Just to help you understand how important people have thought this to be, let me say that this very sentence is what broke up the church. 500 years ago, the Roman church was in the process of selling something called indulgences. It was a means of raising money. They taught that Jesus and the apostles were way better than you needed to be to get into heaven. And so the church had all this extra, you know, goodness currency lying around. They'd be willing to sell it to you in order to get your, you know, dear departed Uncle Harry out of purgatory and into heaven. And so people bought indulgences to get to heaven. They paid big money for it. And then their sins swept them away as the wind sweeps away the leaves. Even today, a great many people are counting on purgatory to get rid of their sins, or they count on their own good deeds, or they count on doing the sacraments, or they count on praying five times a day, or they count on making a religious pilgrimage of some sort, or they count on acts of self-denial. That's the story of religion. And the Bible contradicts all of that. It tells us that the only possible way of getting right with God is by grace through faith. We're saved by faith and by faith alone. So what does it mean? Well, first, grace is God's gift of love to the undeserving. We define grace as unmerited or unearned favor. Grace is the love of God going out to the undeserving. Listen, when you get a paycheck from your place of work, that's not grace. You've worked hard for your employer and he's obligated to give it to you. You're rewarded in keeping with your service. Your pay is a merit. It's earned. It's deserved. Grace, on the other hand, is a free gift given by a free action of God premised upon his pleasure and not our merit or our work. We can't earn grace. You can't be good enough for it. You can't sacrifice for grace. It's given freely. Let me retell a story I heard years ago, and I must confess, I've forgotten where. But it's the story of two men kneeling at a prayer altar after a worship service. One was a prestigious judge, the other a former burglar who had previously been sent to prison by the very judge who was kneeling beside him. And after the service, this pastor spoke to the judge. Did you see who was kneeling beside you? Yes, said the judge. And then the judge remarked, what a miracle of grace. And the pastor responded, yes, what a marvelous miracle of grace. But then the judge looked at the pastor and said, whom did you mean? Well, the pastor was stunned. You were thinking about yourself when the judge said, yeah, look at me. I was taught how to behave since I was a child. I came from a good home. I've achieved all my goals in life. I'm respected in the highest circles. It was easy for a burglar to understand grace. But I, what would explain my crying need for mercy? What would explain my presence at this altar? God drew me here. God had mercy on me. I'm an outstanding miracle of grace. Were it not for grace, I wouldn't be at this altar. See, some of us have difficulty with grace. In order to receive grace, we must then conclude that we need grace. We don't easily come for prayer. See, we don't easily kneel at an altar where others can observe us and come to the conclusion, what a sinner he or she must be. That's way too vulnerable for us. We don't want to admit that we're in need and that we're in sin. 
And for all those reasons, we don't naturally confess our sins. We have so much difficulty in confessing that we are in need of grace. And that's why Jesus told the Pharisees that the hookers and the unethical tax collectors made it into the kingdom of heaven ahead of a lot of religious people, even the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests and the leaders in Israel's religion. You see, some of us are in the same great danger. We think we have things to commend ourselves before God. Our feelings tell us we're doing just fine, but the navigational instruments from our Bible tell us that we're headed straight downhill. We'll never make it into heaven unless we receive grace. It's grace we need. We have nothing to commend ourselves. You see, here it is. We are saved by grace and by grace alone. There is no other way to be saved from the weightiness and the deadness of our sins. Now, Ephesians says, for by grace you have been saved. And then it adds, through faith. Now, faith is the only acceptable response to God's grace or his kindness. You know, faith is one of the most important words in the entire Bible, and we have to understand it. It means, first of all, belief. Yeah, you have to believe that you're a sinner. You have to believe that Jesus, the Messiah, is the Son of God. And you have to believe that his sinless life and perfect sacrifice provides you with forgiveness. You have to believe that when he died on the cross, his death paid for you. And you have to believe that God tells you to turn from your sins and to put your hope in Christ because he paid for your sins on the cross. And so faith is belief. But hear me, faith is also trust. You have to have trust in Jesus. We can trust in him because he's revealed himself to us. You know, when I was a little boy, I was watching my dad building our house, the one that I grew up in. You know, somehow I fell between the joists down to the concrete below. And somehow I managed on the way down to grab a hold of one of the joists, which prevented me from falling to great injury. But I had only had it with a partial grip and I was quickly losing my grip and I was about to fall. My father reached out his hand, grab hold, he said. And I trusted him, let go of the joist and took hold of his hand. I let go of the joist and grabbed his hand because I knew his great strength and I knew he wouldn't fail me. I trusted in him. That's faith. Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Do you want to know the answers to some of the most commonly asked questions from our listeners? Well, this month, I'll be privileged to host a special Back to the Bible Canada Q&A video series with Dr. John Newfeld, where he'll respond to some of the most timely and critical questions of faith and life. You can watch this series on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel or online at backtothebible.ca. And to ensure you never miss a new Back to the Bible Canada video program, remember to subscribe to the YouTube channel while you're there. One of our viewers wrote to say, I just subscribed. Thank you for sharing God's word. The greatest calling in life is to present the truth of his word. For more information or to support the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Faith is trust in Jesus. Faith denies that we're able to save ourselves. 
Faith places our hope for eternity solely into the hands of Jesus. Faith throws contempt on the deceit of pride that I have anything I can offer God or that I can earn my own eternal happiness. Faith categorically denies karma, for that's the belief that my deeds determine my outcome. Faith proclaims that only Jesus' deeds can determine my outcome. So let's be clear. This kind of faith is an exclusive trust. You have to let go of all other means of confidence. That is, you must trust Jesus to the exclusion of everyone and everything else. If you say to yourself, you know, I'll trust Jesus, but I'll also trust my good deeds and my religious duties, then in effect you're saying, you know, if Jesus doesn't come through, I have a backup plan. If you have a backup plan, you don't trust Jesus. Let's take it one step further. In order to understand this, you must understand why grace comes only by faith. If you want to imagine you're going to a doctor with incurable cancer, the doctor says, I have a cure for you, but you have to trust me. You've got to follow my regimen exactly as I tell you. Now, let us suppose that you agree, but then decide to think better of it later. You want to hedge your bets. You decide to add your own treatment and take other medications from every single quack that comes along. Who would receive credit in the end of the day? You know, some of us would say, well, you know, I think I cured myself. Now, look, every illustration breaks down at some point, so don't take this illustration too far. In my illustration, I assume that you can receive a doctor's treatment plus other things, but perhaps that's okay for medicine. It's not so for faith. Faith forgets all backup plans. Faith throws oneself wholly and unreservedly onto Jesus, and it's this truth that we're saved by grace, and this grace is mediated or it's channeled through faith. And then we read, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. See, the question that we might ask here is, what does this refer to? This is not your own doing. You know, some have suggested that this refers to grace. Grace is not our own doing. And of course, that's true. If it were our own doing, it wouldn't be grace. You know, others have argued that it refers to faith. In other words, the trust in Jesus that also is not our own doing. Now, on the face of it, that can seem wrong. And I say it can seem wrong because of the grammar of the passage. In the Greek, the gender of the noun faith is that faith is a feminine noun. And the word this is neuter. And so at least as the argument goes, this can't refer to faith. But then if it can't refer to grace either, because that's a feminine noun as well. So then what do we make of the grammar of this passage? You know, one scholar has written, grace is God's part and faith is our part. But if that were so, how could we then say we're saved by grace alone? Because we would be then saying grace is what God does and faith is what we do. Again, what is this referring to? I think that this refers to the entirety of our salvation. Salvation was not our own doing. The grace which saved us was not our own doing. The faith that we exercised in Christ was not our own doing. In everything pertaining to salvation, none of the credit is our doing, not one thing. Now, of course, it is true that we must exercise faith. Faith is required of us if we are to be saved. We must trust. We must look to Christ alone for salvation and not to ourselves. We must fix our eyes on Jesus. Let me suggest a little illustration that I've learned from my hobby. I ride a motorcycle. I know it's dangerous. And so I've tried to educate myself as much as possible with the skills of motorcycle safety. I know that when going around a corner, one of the reasons motorcyclists crash is that they have their eyes in the wrong place. 
Often it is that they look exactly in front of them or even at the dangers at the side of the road. But every good motorcyclist knows that where your eyes go, that's where your bike goes. Stop looking at the side of the road where the danger lies. Instead, fix your eyes on the end of the curve in the road, and that's where your motorcycle will go as well. Now, in the same way, if you want eternal salvation, don't fix your eyes on your abilities or on your sins or failures or on the dangers that are before you or even on how much faith you have. Rather, fix your eyes on Christ. Listen to how Hebrews 12 verse 2 says it, looking to Jesus, and then he adds, the author and perfecter of our faith. Notice the Bible says, who is the author of our faith? He says, Jesus is. He's the object of our faith. But he's also the one who produced faith in us. And says Hebrews, as time goes by, he also perfects our faith. He brings it to conclusion. And so it's certainly in line with what the rest of the Bible teaches to say that faith itself is not our own doing. Even that is a gift of God. We're thankful to God that in mercy, he permitted us to trust in Jesus. So if you and I are trusting in Christ for salvation today, we should remember, let's not take any credit for it, none at all. I'm not even the least bit morally superior to the person who didn't believe in Christ. For had it not been for grace, how would it that I would have come to believe? Faith, trust in Jesus, stands opposed to a confidence in human effort. God isn't impressed when you try hard. He's impressed by your trust in Christ. Church membership, baptism, giving to charity, being a good neighbor, taking communion, trying to keep the Ten Commandments, living by the golden rule, abstaining from certain foods, doing your duty, depriving yourself of something you love, praying five times a day, meditation, holding crystals and chanting, a search for spiritual enlightenment, a joining of a secret society, or whatever you do. Let me add, whatever you add as a means of salvation, all of that is an offense to God. How dare we think that we can do something to save ourselves and therefore get the glory and praise and credit for our salvation? How we want to exalt ourselves and denigrate God. God will not share his glory with us. We must decide whether it will be faith or all that other stuff. We must trust Christ or we'll be trusting our own efforts. The choice is clear. It's like the airplane pilot. Shall I trust my own feelings or shall I trust the objective navigational instruments? Now, one step further, in case you should think that faith is just insurance that you're going to go to heaven when you die, think again. You know, we need to add verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The term workmanship is a word often used in the Bible to speak of God's creation of the universe in general and of the world in particular. The word reminds us that not only did God create the world, but by the way, it's a work of splendor. Not only did God make you and what complexity you have, how fearfully and wonderfully you're made, but he created you new in Christ when you believed in him. And those of us who believe are created in Christ for good works. Good works will never get anyone to heaven. We've made that clear. But it was Martin Luther who said, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. That is to say, all true faith is accompanied by good works. Again, good works will not get you into heaven, But good works literally ooze out of the person who has believed in Christ. We're God's workmanship. That's why wherever the church has gone, that's wherever the gospel is gone, 
wherever men and women have had faith in Christ, good works always follow. Christians have always pioneered and built hospitals and schools and provided help in agriculture. Christians have always cared for the poor. Christians have always labored to bring peace where there's strife. True faith, living faith, always reaches out to recreate the work of Christ. I don't have to tell people of faith to be involved in ministry. It's their nature to do so. They are God's workmanship. God's creative activity results in good works. Our part is simply to follow God's lead. He is prepared beforehand that we should walk in these good works. It is this element of walking in the pathway that God has prepared for us that really should catch our eye. It's God who leads. We only follow. God marks out the path. We walk in it. It's really just that simple. Just do the things that God has prepared for you to do and find joy that God has called you to do it. Some of you never knew how important this matter is. So if this is a discovery, could I ask something of you? Would you tell the Lord today, I this day renounce any thought that I can save myself? As the hymn writer said, Thou must save and thou alone. This day I renounce trust in myself and in my abilities. And this day, I trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And I have come to realize that my salvation comes because of grace. Would you today live by trust, by confidence in Christ, and heap contempt on confidence in yourself to the glory of God? Thanks so much, John. You know, we've talked about this before, but is it safe to say that many have prayed the sinner's prayer and, and they've begun a marvelous journey of faith? But then there are those whom simply praying the prayer has made no difference at all. Yeah, and I don't want to do away with the sinner's prayer. I, I think it's very important to use this as a vital tool to call people to come to Christ. Um, but our, our faith is not in the sinner's prayer. Our faith is in Christ. So our prayer would be that as an individual praise the sinner's prayer, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I know that I have no reason to appeal for mercy, but that you are a merciful God, that you sent your son. I believe Jesus is the son of God. I receive Christ's offer of forgiveness. All those things that we pray, these are so important. But we should not tell people that the prayer has saved you. We should tell them that it is trust in Christ that has saved us. So Don't make an idol of the sinner's prayer. Make a God of Jesus. Thanks so much, John. It was a great series. And remember to join us again next week as we continue looking into the Word of God right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Following Christ involves offering Him everything. Therefore, it naturally follows that following Christ includes our money and our resources. Well, this month, we're excited to offer you Dr. John Neufeld's entire CD series, God and Money, as our free Bible teaching resource, and and all you need to do is ask. In this five-message series, Dr. Neufeld describes the advantages of money, its inherent dangers, and how we should manage our money based on an understanding of what the Bible actually teaches. Break down some of the myths and open up your heart and mind as you listen to this important series, God and Money. 
Ask for your free copy today. All you need to do is visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.